3: And welcome back. So, breaking news. A federal judge has just uh, ruled that uh, Donald Trump... Well, uh, let me put it in context. John Eastman, who was the guy who was advising Donald Trump's legal strategy to have uh, uh, Vice President Pence refuse to accept electors from states, from the swing states that Trump lost, and instead accept the phony electors right? He was the guy behind this whole thing with the, with the phony electoral votes. He was using the email account of his university and the, so the January 6th committee subpoenaed the university and said we want to see those emails between Eastman and Trump or Eastman and Trump's people and, and see what the deal was. It, it, it was between Eastman and Trump but Trump doesn't have email but you get, mob bosses never do, right? Mob bosses always do everything through their subordinates. But in any case uh, so this federal judge, uh, just his name is uh, David Carter. He's in the Los Angeles, uh, U.S. District Court. Um, he just ruled, he said, based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. He goes on to say, our nation was founded on the peaceful transition of power epitomized by George Washington laying down his sword to make way for democratic elections. Was a 44 page ruling he said ignoring this history president trump vigorously campaigned for the vice president to single-handedly determine the results of the 2022 election with a plan this bold president trump knowingly tried to subvert this fundamental principle and then he and then he takes this argument that eastman was making that the electoral count act of 1787 or 89 Um, was unconstitutional. He says, believing the Electoral Count Act was unconstitutional does not give President Trump a license to violate it. Disagreeing with the law entitles Trump to seek a remedy in court, not to disrupt a constitutionally mandated process. And President Trump knew how to pursue election claims in court after filing and losing more than 60 suits. This plan was a last ditch attempt to secure the presidency by any means. Um, this, you know, I mean, this is not changing the world in any huge way. It is going to give the, the, the committee some documents. But it's also a big deal in that it will—this is a federal judge. It, this, this will raise the pressure on Merrick Garland to do something. We so far have no evidence whatsoever— that the Justice Department is investigating Donald Trump. And typically when there is an investigation, you have all kinds of evidence because you have people coming out of grand jury rooms going, holy cow, or I'm, I'm angry or you know, whatever. None of that happening. It looks like you know Garland's just doing whatever Garland does. I don't know, bowling, but anyhow. But I wanted to talk about also what's happening in Davis, California and the zero COVID approach. Laura Spinney wrote a a great piece over at The Guardian. It's it's titled The Zero COVID Approach Got Bad Press, but it worked and it could work again. And basically what she's talking about, you know, there were countries, China is the the most prominent, and of course they're being bit in the backside in some ways by this right now, um, that tried to prevent COVID altogether by having lockdowns and mask mandates and regular testing and all that kind of thing. And it largely worked until Omicron came along. And now Omicron has punched through the holes in that, uh, particularly in Hong Kong, and, and, you know, China has a bit of a problem. But uh, what she's pointing out is that the time, for a time, uh, the, you can limit the spread of a disease, and it's potentially controllable. And then it hits a point where you just can't control it. It's out of control. And that's obviously what happened here in the United States. That's not what happened in China. They did control it. Now, they should have used that time to get everybody vaccinated, but at least in Hong Kong, you've got a large chunks of the population who are not vaccinated and thus it's you know it's kind of melting down but she points out Laura spinning in her article points out what's going on in Davis California this is absolutely fascinating Davis California is a college town seventy seven thousand people live in town and then you've got the the college campus as well that's around 15,000 people living on campus and the college got together with the town and this was funded by the college initially, although the town later got you know, uh, COVID funds and pandemic funds and whatnot to, to do this. And has just you know, made the town basically COVID free. They start out with this, uh, she starts out with this story. Once a week, Lori Janich right, drives down the street from her office and partakes in an ongoing success story. Phone in hand to confirm her appointment, she strolls into the large activities and recreation center on the campus at UC Davis. Uh, reaches a COVID-19 testing station, swirls water in her mouth, spits into a tube, and leaves. Within a day, she receives her test result. This is an article over at the Sacramento Bee, sacbee.com, by Mark Creedler. He, he notes, the same goes, uh, he says, everything about the COVID-19 testing process is free. The same goes for all UC uh, Davis students, faculty members, and staffers, Davis City residents, local workers, and visitors, anyone whose life brings them into the, into the town and points out this experiment, uh, basically putting the university and its adjoining city into a health bubble, has delivered incredible results. Free saliva-based testing. You don't have to stick anything up your nose. You just spit into a tube. Free vaccinations, free masks, and the city pays for isolation or quarantine housing if you test positive. THE CITY IS ALSO REGULARLY TESTING THEIR CITY WASTEWATER, AND THEY'RE ROUTINELY SCREENING CHILDREN IN THE LOCAL SCHOOL, AGAIN, USING SPIT TESTS. PLUS, UC DAVIS HAS PUT TOGETHER A 200-PERSON, ESSENTIALLY ARMY, THEY CALL THEM HEALTH AMBASSADORS, AND THEY HIRED A LOCAL PR FIRM TO GET THE MESSAGE OUT. Uh, THEY, uh, IN THIS ARTICLE, THEY NOTE THAT YOU you CAN'T WALK A BLOCK IN THE CITY WITHOUT SEEING SIGNS ABOUT, YOU KNOW, THE IMPORTANCE OF DOING THIS, of, OF KEEPING COVID DOWN. Right now, I mean, this is, this this article uh, was published on March seventh. It was what two weeks ago. Davis's cumulative COVID-19 infection rate, he notes, is roughly half the statewide average. In January 2020, when California was experiencing a 17% test positivity positivity rate, Davis's weekly average came in just above one percent. This past January, you know, three months ago, two, two and a half months ago, as Omicron pushed state positivity rates above 20 percent, Davis's weekly average never got above 5 percent. So what uh, Laura Spinney is proposing over at The Guardian, and it's a great piece, She just uh, there's just a hot link in, in, in it into the story about Davis, but that's, I think, really the big story, is basically what New Zealand did. And... Uh, and China and and some of these other countries. And, and and her point is, if you combine these kinds of mitigation strategies with an aggressive vaccination strategy between the two, you end up with a COVID-free environment. And that's like a good thing. That's a desirable thing. I mean, given that uh, there was a piece about this in the New York Times last, last uh, I think it was Friday, maybe it was Saturday. I, in fact, I... Uh, It must have been Saturday because I didn't talk about it on the air, and I copied it to to my family, I recall. Um, You know, about how about a third of people who get symptomatic COVID end up with long COVID, between 10 and 30 percent. I'm using the high end of the range, but that's what they said, between 10 and 30 percent, as far as they can tell. Right now, people who get symptomatic COVID, it becomes long COVID. And about a third of those people, as you know, for their symptoms of long COVID, they're experiencing extreme fatigue and or dementia, brain fog. And in fact, there was a piece in The New York Times on Sunday about how the brain fog of COVID appears to be using the same mechanism, the same basically brain damage that people get what called chemo brain. When people go on chemo, chemotherapy, they end up with brain fog as well. So if you've got, you know, half of people who get COVID are symptomatic, and of those who are symptomatic, a third of them get long COVID, so that's now a sixth of the people who got COVID, and of the people who are symptomatic and get long COVID, a third of them, so anyway, it's it's just like, you know, why do this? Why have this? Why experience this if you, you know, if there are options, if it's possible to get out of it? So, you know, is your town doing anything about this? Is your state doing anything about this? Increasingly in the United States, we're just saying, hey, let, let a thousand flowers bloom. And, you know, what that's going to mean is that particularly in states or in counties in states that have very low vaccination rates, we're going to see probably another big spike in hospitalizations and illness coming down the road in another month or so. Just as the COVID funds have been cut off. Okay, we're gonna start out with the uh, White House logs. Uh, move over Rosemary Woods, A seven hour gap in Trump's calls on January 6th. Nixon didn't get away with this. Well, Trump will get into that in a second. Also, Biden is now promoting a tax on the top one-tenth or one-hundredth of one percent, and the billionaires are already seriously pissed off. Dr. Eric Feigolding will be dropping by. The World Health Organization has been saying that Omicron is the last COVID-19 variant It's actually the most recent, it's definitely not the last, and the Food and Drug Administration just approved a fourth shot, a second booster for both Moderna and Pfizer. So uh, if you're over 50, get in line right now, call your pharmacy and make an appointment. We'll get to that with Dr. Feigelding at the bottom of this hour. Also is uh, Oregon going to become an assisted suicide tourism hotspot? Maybe. I, you know, well, I'll fill you in. It's fascinating. This was a, a court case, a federal court case. Also an extreme right-winger alert, the Bible-thumper Christian Nationalist running for the state Senate now wants to shoot godless commies in the face. That would be anybody who's not a member of his church, apparently. Also Terry Mills will be with us, and she's with uh, Nurses for America. They're talking to Congress about, we need funding for COVID right now. This pandemic has not gone away, and there's a new variant coming. And it's going to hit the United States in the next few weeks. But to start out this possible cover-up, the White House call logs finally made their way to the January 6th committee. You know, there was all this, you know, Trump saying, oh, no, it's covered by presidential executive privilege. AND SEVEN OUT OF THE EIGHT SUPREME COURT JUSTICES SAID, NO, IT'S NOT. THE PRESIDENT GETS TO DECIDE WHAT'S COVERED BY EXECUTIVE PRIVILEGE, AND THE PRESIDENT IS JOE BIDEN. AND HE SAID, HEY, IT'S FINE WITH ME IF THOSE WHITE HOUSE RECORDS GET TURNED OVER. MAYBE THIS IS WHY TRUMP TRIED TO STEAL THESE THINGS FROM THE WHITE HOUSE AND TOOK THEM DOWN TO MAR-A-LAGO. HE DID, YOU KNOW, STEAL 15 BOXES OF HIGHLY CLASSIFIED DOCUMENTS. A clear felony. If you or I walked into the White House and walked out with even one page of a highly classified document, we could spend the next 20 years in prison. Donald Trump instead is bragging about a shooting a hole in one. But the Washington Post is reporting that these logs turned over to the committee show a gap of seven hours and 37 minutes. It goes from eleven seventeen a.m. to six fifty-four p.m., which is pretty much exactly during the time that Trump's uh, gang and all these uh, right-wing militias were trying to murder Mike Pence and murder Nancy Pelosi and stop the counting of the of the of the election so that Donald Trump could declare a coup in a state of emergency and stay in office. The committee has also been interested in the use of burner phones by people in the Trump uh, orbit to stop the steel rally folks were apparently using burner phones to communicate with high-level people on Trump's team including Trump's family and Mark Meadows. Uh, Trump just came out and said, I don't even know what a burner phone is. Right, if you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. So there's that. And uh, how do you think that's going to turn out? Right. Do you, I mean, you know, when, when the seven-minute gap on the White House tapes was revealed, Rosemary Woods did this uh, photo shoot for the Washington Post where she had one finger on her, on her machine and her foot way off on the other end of the room touching the foot pedal that, that uh, would, you know, so she could hold down the record button while she was hitting the play foot pedal. And nobody believed it. <laughs> Nobody believed it. I mean, it's just, and, uh, you know, who's going to believe that, oh, gee, there's a seven-hour gap in the, seven-hour, 23-minute gap in the Trump tapes. Oh, my. So, uh, picking up your calls, Suzanne in Dublin, Ohio. Hey, Suzanne, what's on your mind today?
4: Uh, Yes, you're talking about the deficit and the Republicans. And Mm -hmm. I, 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 this makes my blood boil, and I want to get your take on it. I always feel that when they run that deficit up, people often forget how it did get run up uh, with their tax breaks for the wealthy and funding the Iraq war. Uh, but then they act, turn the tables and seem to act very responsible and put the burden on the backs of the common man by saying, oh, we can't afford, we've got to cut Social Security, we've got to cut Medicare, you know, education, yep. all the programs that help the common man. And I think that it would be benefit the the democrats when they're running for election to remind people of that you know it has been so successful this
3: two santa claus theory that jude winisky came up with back in the 70s and ronald reagan was the first president ever to put into place i mean he was the literally the first president ever to intentionally run up the budget deficit when he came into office the budget deficit of the united states was under a trillion dollars reagan ran that up to 2.4 trillion dollars when he left it was over $3.5 okay. trillion dollars by the time George Herbert Walker Bush left. And then, as soon as Bill Clinton came into office, they all started screaming about the $3 trillion budget deficit or the uh, national debt, rather, and how Clinton had to immediately cut welfare programs in order to balance the budget, which he did, that idiot. Um, <laughs> I
4: want, I, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, they have theirs, and they don't want to pay for anyone else to, to have. That's right. You know, they can afford private health insurance. They can afford private schools. They... They don't need the public institutions, and uh, they don't want to pay for the rest of them that do need it.
3: Yep. You're thank absolutely you so right, Suzanne.
4: I didn't know the history of 1958. Thank you.
3: Yeah, it was 78, um, uh, I'm pretty oh, sure. I've, I've written several articles about it. If you just uh, plug in two Santa Claus and my name, you will find <laughs> you will find the story. We're complete with all the details and the hot links back to the original Wall Street Journal article. Suzanne, thank you very much for the call. Tom Hartman here with you. Terry Mills is on the line with us, an Oregon nurse, public health defender, member of Nurses for America. NursesforAmerica.net is the website. Uh, Terry's uh, we, uh, Twitter handle is Nurseterry, T-E-R-I-A, uh, nurse Terry A, or Nurses underscore America, um, uh, both on, on Twitter. Uh, Terry, welcome back to the program. It's, it's been quite a while since uh, you've dropped in, but uh, t- tell us what you and Nurses for America are up to right now.
1: Well, thank you so much, Tom, for having me on this show. I'm sorry that we couldn't Skype. Um, I guess that was a, fa- a technology fail this morning. Um, but Nurses for America is a grassroots organization of very concerned nurses. And right now, one of the things, one of our top priorities is getting Congress to understand how critically important it is to renew COVID funding. Um, we're, we are just... Absolutely flabbergasted as most of the public health professionals and um, people in the medical and nursing profession are. Um, it is just unfathomable that Congress would not renew funding because, as you know, um, we have a new variant, Omicron BA2, that's rapidly spreading. In fact, Shanghai this morning announced that it was shutting down its entire city. Um, They're going to test every single individual. And here we are in the United States, um, knowing that it's already spread on in the Northeast coast. And we have a pattern and we know that pattern is, it comes from overseas, it comes to the United States, and pretty soon we have a surge.
3: Right, it goes to big cities. If, uh, Terry, if I if, forgive the interruption, but just for people who don't know what we're talking about, let me set this up. Um, the, a couple of weeks ago, Congress passed, in order to keep the government opened, uh, a must spend, must pass budget omnibus bill. It, it just, you know, it funded the whole government, it funded the military, it funded all kinds of stuff. And there was $15 billion in there to continue things like free COVID testing, free vaccines, um, you know, masks, uh, uh, the COVID, anti-COVID drugs, these new, uh, you know, oral pharmaceuticals, the the uh, the, the drug that from Dissevere, I think it's called, that's taken by infusion. It funded all those things. And the Republicans demanded that it be removed from from that budget bill. And the Democrats acceded to that. They said, OK, we'll take it out because, you know, the the budget bill had to pass. It was a must pass bill. And so now and and I'm of the opinion that the Republicans demanded that it be taken out because they want the pandemic to come back. They want it to be bad. They they're they're licking their chops at the thought that Omicron is going to devastate America because it'll reflect poorly on Joe Biden. Um, you don't have to comment on the politics of that. But that's, that's where we're at right now, is you know, sometime in the next couple of weeks or the next couple of months, depending on where you are in the country, there's not going to be any more free COVID tests. There's not going to be any more free shots. There's not going to be any more anything. And a lot of states are losing funding to, to track this stuff. Correct me if I've misstated anything here, Terry.
1: No, I think what they were asking, the only thing that I can think of offhand is I I think um, at that time they were asking for $22.5 billion. But we know really to scale up a full, robust response, we probably need closer to $100 billion. And, you know, who is this going to most affect? It's the patients that we care about the most. It's our underserved community. It's the uninsured. It's the BIPOC community. And many of us, like myself, have been volunteering since the beginning of the pandemic because we want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to get vaccinated to obtain testing, which is so important to keeping our schools open, our poor school nurses, um, they must just be uh, just be flabbergasted, like I said right now, and dismayed, because we don't wanna close our schools. And Tom, you know, a COVID test costs about $125. And what family who's struggling right now with inflation, trying to put food on their table, trying to transport themselves at the expense of gas to and from work, who is going to be able to pay for that test?
3: Right, Quest Diagnostics has just come out and said they're gonna start, start charging people $125. It's $119 right. for the test and a $6 right. physician fee. And
5: right.
2: uh, it,
1: it is... one, thing, one thing, excuse me, one thing that um, you didn't mention that's also a big concern is the NIH also receives spending for um, testing for new variants and so we need that we need to be able to know when we're getting a new variant but even more important we need to come up with um, with a way to develop a new vaccine if that's needed otherwise you can see that we're even though we're still climbing up the mountain to reach the cliff we're going to fall right off the cliff right and I'm worried not just for the health of our people, our country, but also for our economy at the same time.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, this is gonna hit at the worst possible time. Uh, Terry, yeah. any update on, the, on the, uh, the second booster from Merck and Moderna?
1: No, uh, Pfizer no, and Moderna all I know is that um, Pfizer and um, Moderna have both asked the FDA for a second booster, which would be like the fourth vaccine, right. however, I want to tell your listeners, this is also something that really concerns me as a nurse. We just have 10 seconds. Okay. Only 30% of the adult population has received their boost, their third shot. And we need to get that 70% in as soon as possible.
3: Yeah, especially while there's still money to pay for it. Terry, Terry Mills, nursesforamerica.net nurses is the website. Uh, Nurse Terry, T-E-R-I-A, on Twitter or nurses underscore America. Terry, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always great talking to you.
1: Thank you, Tom. Have a good day.
3: Thank you. You too. Crazy alert. Last September, MAGA minister Jackson Lehmire, a mega church pastor, a church pastor, and uh, last year he challenged Jim Langford In the Republican primary. Uh, Jim Langford is Oklahoma's Republican senator. He lost, but he said that uh, during that campaign, he said that he wanted to see the establishment of military tribunals to send godless commies to burn forever in a lake of fire. This was his campaign slogan, I guess. (laughs) He repeatedly declared... Uh, speaking of liberals or people who don't share his right wing Christian nationalist worldview that America should become exclusively a Christian country, that uh, he wants to, quote, shoot them in the face. This guy is preaching Jesus. For those of you who ever read the Bible, there's something weird here. But anyhow, now he's running for the Oklahoma State Senate. And in a campaign ad, he, he declared we are at war with communists. And, he, and he's asking the voters to unleash me. He said, this war is designed to not look like a war. They're coming for our kids. They've hostaged the government. They've destroyed the economy. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. I also think it's the only way we overcome. I think it's the way that we win. This guy literally wants to establish a theocratic state in Oklahoma. Crazy alert number one. Crazy alert number two. This is equally disgusting. Marjorie Taylor Greene last week gave a speech. She was talking about Pete Buttigieg, right? Pete and his husband Chastain have adopted a couple of kids. And in this, in this attack, I, I, I don't even know how to describe this. It, it, well, I do know how to describe it. She said that he can, quote, take his electric vehicles and his bicycles, and he and his husband can stay out of our girls' bathrooms, end quote. Now, why would she say that? Neither of these men are trans. Neither of them are, well, she would say it because what she's doing is perpetuating this, this god-awful, probably one of the most destructive stereotypes of gay men that has ever, has ever haunted the earth, that has led to the murder of, of uh, no doubt millions uh, throughout history of gay men, which is that they're all sexual predators. And, you know, I, I, I shouldn't even have to say it. it's not true, but it's, you know, it, 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 this is so disgusting. This is, this is beyond homophobic. This is a slur on, on all gay men. And, and Marjorie Taylor Greene should be held, held you know, somehow accountable for this. I, it's just like, this is the kind of rhetoric that leads to murder. And a whole bunch of stuff short of murder, you know, discrimination and hate and other problems. But Marjorie Taylor Greene has just gone off the edge. She, well, I'll leave it at that. I just, I'm, I'm so horrified by that. Okay, Oregon was the first state in the union to pass a law for assisted suicide. I remember it well because I was on the air and living in Oregon at the time when that happened. AND DOING A LOCAL SHOW HERE AS WELL AS MY NATIONAL SHOW. ACTUALLY, I'M WRONG. <laughs> IT WAS ENACTED IN 1997, AND I WAS NOT DOING A SHOW HERE. I just, I JUST LOOKED IT UP HERE. WELL, IN ANY CASE, WE WERE DOING SHOWS ABOUT IT BACK IN, in 2005 WHEN WE MOVED OUT HERE. BUT OREGON'S FIRST IN THE NATION LAW ALLOWS TERMINALLY-ILL PEOPLE WHO HAVE LESS THAN SIX MONTHS TO LIVE TO END THEIR LIVES VOLUNTARILY BY TAKING A LETHAL MEDICATION. YOU HAVE TO JUMP THROUGH A WHOLE BUNCH OF HOOPS. You have to make two different, separate, verbal requests to your doctor. Those requests must be at least 15 days, two weeks apart. And you must submit a written request that must be signed in the presence of two other witnesses. The attending physician and the consulting physician must confirm the patient's diagnosis and prognosis and determine whether the patient is capable of making health care decisions. If either doctor believes the patient is suffering from depression or another mental disorder, they can refer the patient for a psychological exam. I'm reading from AP News, a piece by Gene Johnson. Here in Oregon, a little over 2,000 people have taken this option to you know, kind of speed their departure. Similar laws have now been passed and taken effect in California, Colorado, Maine, Hawaii, New Jersey, New Mexico, Vermont, Washington State, and Washington, D.C. And I'm telling you, if I, you know, if I was dying and I was in excruciating pain and my quality of life absolutely sucked, I mean, when we look at our dogs going through this, when we look at our cats going through this, we take them to the vet and say, put them down. Let, you know, let them end their pain, their suffering. Why not us? Well, the, the argument or the, the whole debate, and, and I get it. The, you know, the Catholics and, and some other religious folks are... Totally opposed to this, that they, they think that God, via the process of disease, should decide to decide when you die, not you. I get that, I get that, and and I respect that. If if you believe that God sent you a disease to kill you, and you are and you have to suffer to to uh, fulfill God's desire and wishes, and you want to suffer uh, through to the end, go for it. I would never stop you. But here's where it gets weird or interesting. U.S. District Court yesterday here in Portland, a federal court said that Oregon, or, or, in, in Oregon, in order to uh, apply for you know, uh, assisted suicide, you have to be a resident, you have to live in the state, you have to establish residency in the state of Oregon. And that's true in all those other states as well. This federal judge said that's discriminatory. You can't do that, the residency requirement. And so now you've got people who are hysterically saying, and this was actually the national right to life, a spokeswoman for national right to life, uh, warned that without a residency requirement, Oregon is going to become the nation's assisted suicide tourism capital. Uh, No, (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, the law is still rigorous, even without without the uh, residency requirement. You still have to make a written request, was signed by two witnesses. You have to find two different doctors who agree with you. And in some cases, in many places, it's hard to even find such a doctor. Um, one of the points that the article made is that in many parts of the country, or actually it was a piece in the Oregonian I read last night, that right across the river in Washington State in Vancouver, um, a lot of the hospitals are, are run by the Catholics. And and the doctors work for them, and they they just can't do this, just like they can't do abortions. They'll lose their jobs. And so, you know, it's a tough thing. But... Uh, so I don't think that we're going to have uh, uh, suicide tourism, as it were. But I do think that this is actually one of the most compassionate things that can be done. I think this is a right-to-life issue. It's a, it's a right to quality of life. So what do you think? Is this, you know, should more states do this? Should, we, should you know this go national? Or should this be outlawed? We'll be back with your calls right after this. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees' distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hartman with two ends. netsuite.com slash hartman. That's netsuite.com slash hartman.
6: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
3: Pat in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Pat, what's on your mind today?
7: Tom, I wanted to talk about assisted suicide. My husband, four years ago, he, four years before that, he had his first stroke, and then he had a second stroke. And by the time he was in a nursing home, he couldn't move a a limb. He couldn't. He was choking, and he, um, all he wanted to do was die. And it took a lot of effort, but we did it and <clears throat> i brought him home that day he enjoyed a breakfast that i cooked for him and um i asked him if he was ready to go and he was so he took the pill took the uh, pills and um was asleep in 2 minutes and dead in 2 hours and he was so relieved and so was i because he, he'd been promised he was either going to die of uh, choking or pneumonia, one or the other. And mm-hmm. neither, but he couldn't move a, a limb. The only thing he had left was his brain, yeah. or he couldn't move. I mean, and he didn't like it that way at all.
3: Yeah, it's got to it, be. It's it, got to be very, very tough. It's got to be very, very tough. Pat, thank right. you. For- I'm sorry, you wanted to make a final should be,
7: I just say it should be easier than it, that it is, because I had a hard time trying to f- persuade doctors to sign that cheat. And yeah. one of them said, well, I will sign it, but my wife won't let me. Oh, my. Which, yeah. And then others said, well, he does enjoy eating, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was c- criminal.
3: Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. Pat, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story okay. with us. I appreciate it. Susan in Caldwell, Idaho. Hey, Susan, what's up?
8: Hey, Tom. I'm a long-time listener. Love your show. I'm a retired RN Mm -hmm. who has spent 30 years prior to my retirement shepherding people off this mortal coil Mm. in the skilled nursing industry. And I want to warn your listeners that the for-profit skilled nursing industry is structured in such a way that the nurses and the doctors cannot provide adequate analgesia and comfort to the dying.
3: And that's because of our national hysteria about opioids?
8: A little bit. The doctors, even the hospice doctors, will write the morphine doses too low for what the patient requires. But it's the staffing of these for profit institutions where a nurse has 28 patients, oh. one or two of whom are actively dying, and they require almost constant attention for their suffering and it is actual suffering yeah and it's criminal it's wrong and it's not going to change kudos to oregon i live in idaho which will not do that kudos to oregon that's all i can say but i want to warn people to be prepared a, a they're, dedicated they're... nurse will be at the bedside every 15 minutes but it's almost impossible with a patient load of nearly 30 people
3: yeah and and that's all just to enhance the profits of the hospital
8: oh they're they're actually for profit mm. and they make a lot of money yeah wow actually
3: susan thank you thank you for sharing the story <laughs> I mean, the the plot thickens right amazing Hey, just a quick note here. The uh, New York Daily News is running an op-ed by uh, Robert Gottlieb and Gerald Court, one a lifetime prosecutor, criminal prosecutor, and the other a lifetime defense attorney. And the headline is, District Attorney Bragg, explain why you dropped the case against Trump. Amen. They note Pomerance's, uh, Mark Pomerance was one of the two, along with a guy named Dunn, Kerry Dunn, were the two prosecutors who were leading the investigation. And Pomerance's, his uh, resignation letter says, you know, we could have nailed Trump. And they quote that or they cite that. They say, along with recent reports, the prosecutors are now returning documents to people who turned information over about Trump's business. They say, together we practiced criminal law as a prosecutor and a criminal defense attorneys for more than 85 years. We embrace the ethical principle that prosecutors shouldn't normally publicly comment on ongoing investigations, but the facts and circumstances of the Trump investigation compel two highly experienced and respected lawyers to suddenly resign after years of work, cry out for answers to restore public confidence in one of the country's most highly respected prosecutor's offices. Amen. Inquiring minds want to know. Okay, picking up your phone calls here, Igor in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Igor, what's on your mind today?
2: Tom, I'm a precinct committeeman and also worked for a number of uh, progressive candidates. Good on you. And I was aware of the Oregon law, and I came across a progressive candidate who did get elected to the state senate. And her father had passed away and suffered greatly somewhere back east. And she was talking about we need some kind of law to uh, where people don't have to suffer before they die. For death with dignity. I told her, yeah, and I told her about the Oregon law, and I said, well, why don't you work on getting this passed? And I worked on her campaign, she got elected,
3: and lo and behold, we had the law here in Colorado. Wow! So she helped propose that law or helped get it passed with the with the story yep. of her father's experience. Yes. Wow! That's good on you, Igor. That's how it's supposed to work. Yep. I'm I'm so I'm so uh, you know impressed and and so pleased. Thank you very much for sharing that story with us and and thank you for being a precinct committee person in your local Democratic Party. That is a big deal, Igor. Good on you, Granville in Nitro, West Virginia. Hey, Granville, what's on your mind today?
0: I was originally calling in about the death with dignity and I'm a I've been a director of nursing's house uh, supervisor sometimes most of the time I was usually the only RN in a building and one of the nurses earlier um that was on had mentioned skilled nursing unit dealing with patients that are passing mm-hmm. and she's right on I mean
3: Oh, no, hang on just a second here, Granville. What, what she essentially said was that some of these institutions basically require their nursing staffs to not provide the kind of care that desperately ill and well, massively in pain people need because of their because they're trying to jack up their profits by cutting the number of nurses. Is that the essence right. of it?
0: Yeah, she's 100% correct. And on the other side of that is most skilled nursing facilities are also connected to or part of a long-term care facility and their patient ratio like the ones I've the ones some of the ones I've worked in like that I was supervisor over I was over the whole building 130 patients I was the only R in the building I had literally the director of version told me until seven o'clock in the morning it was my job to make the decision wow. in the end. So it uh, wasn't a
3: 28 to one in, patient in, in, ratio like she was talking about, it was a hundred and something.
0: Well, it was for, for the supervisor, which was me, I had 28 patients on the skilled unit, uh-huh. and I was responsible for the other hundred long-term care. Wow. Here's the kicker, the LPNs that were taking care of the long care, long-term care patients, mm-hmm. On a good night, it was one to thirty-three. Most nights, it was one to fifty.
3: Wow! Which means in in one hour, if you're in pain, if you get one minute of that nurse's attention, that's a big deal.
0: Yes. Yeah. And these nurses, especially on nights, because they will. You got to think every position that they cannot feel, that's thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars in budget that they say these administrators get if they come in like with a positive budget they're under budget They right. made made money right. they they get quarterly and yearly bonuses that is a percentage of
3: that based on how many like, people they cannot have on the floor serving their patients that's breathtaking right. i mean obviously they the choose, solution to they this. Yeah, the solution to this is not to in- increase the number of people who are, you know, trying to speed their exit from from this mortal coil. The solution to this is to is to have federal standards at the very least, or if not state standards. Uh, but it sounds pretty grim there in West Virginia, uh, Granville.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I've worked West Virginia, Kentucky, uh, Nebraska. I was director of nursing there. It was actually mm-hmm. uh, one of the best facilities I ever worked at. Mm-hmm. We had, well, example kitchen budget. The facility the facility I worked at there, we had our kitchen budget for a 64-bed facility that was half full, a little bit over half, was double what the dietary kitchen budget was at one I worked here in West Virginia that had the 130 beds. Wow.
3: Yeah. So Granville, yeah Granville thanks a lot for for uh, flagging this stuff I mean this is just grim grim stuff the state this is what happens when uh, you know I, I, I keep saying this back in this back in the 70s when I was running a small business in Michigan Michigan required every hospital in the state to be not-for-profit and every health insurance company to be not-for-profit and it was inexpensive and the quality was spectacular and everything's gone to hell since Reaganism and, and neoliberalism. Jim, in Lake Isabella, California. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind?
2: Yeah, Tom, I'm another retired nurse, and I'd like to ditto everything your other two nurses have said. Uh, I've held nursing licenses in Arizona and California, and you'll find they're not much different than West Virginia, as far as patient load. Uh, it really, I mean, you talked about federal reg- regulations. There are federal regulations, and actually these companies are within federal reg- regulation. They need to improve the federal reg- regulation. I anything. guess. I guess. Uh, and, you know, and then the other thing on, on assisted uh, suicide- Right, well, let's that, call it death been, with
3: dignity. That's the phrase that the advocates prefer to use, but yeah, go ahead. Well,
2: I I'm old, I'm old school, that's what we called it back then. So yeah. uh, anyway, uh, the best thing that family can do is is to sit down with a bottle of bourbon and sip on and, uh, an evening and, and talk about what it is that they want at that that point in their life and get it all down on paper and, and signed by a lawyer whatever they got to do so that those wishes are followed once they in, enter an institution.
3: Right, or even better, video or well, not better, not instead, but videotape the whole thing too while you're doing it.
2: Yes, sir, but they're going to have have it notarized and signed by a lawyer so nobody no one can change their mind. Yeah. Uh, And, and you know, just you just run into so many situations where people don't even know about hospice. Uh, And, you know, I had an issue with oncologists who who would uh, have a stage four patient with metastasized everywhere at every major organ. And they'd keep them on chemo until they only had maybe three, four days left. And then they turn them over to me as a hospice nurse. And I'm supposed to bring them to acceptance in four days. It just doesn't work that
3: way. Why do they do Uh, that? Is it because they make uh, money selling the chemo? I mean, is it that crass? Thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars $1,400 in an IV, yeah. What? Thirteen or $1,400 a day? For, for treatment, for yeah. Wow. We've got a really screwed up system. Jim, thank you. Thank you for the call.
6: And thanks My- for sharing your experience. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
3: Well, big news today on the COVID front. On the line with us is our old buddy, Dr. Eric Ding, the epidemiologist and senior fellow with the Federation of American Scientists, the first whistleblower of the COVID pandemic, former faculty member and researcher at the Harvard Medical School and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. Eric Ding is his uh, Twitter handle, D-R-E-R-I-C-D-I-N-G, uh, or F-A scientists, uh, the uh, uh, F-A scientists on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Feigelding, welcome back to the program. So uh, two big topics I wanted to discuss with you, I'll just toss them both out and let you go off on it, is number one, we've got Omicron BA2 coming. Uh, What does the experience of other countries tell us we should expect here in the United States? And number two, your thoughts on the FDA just an hour or so ago authorizing the second booster for people over 50 years old.
9: Yeah, thanks for having me. I think BA2 is really worrisome. And CDC just today reported that BA2 has crisscrossed and exceeded BA1 for the first time. So it's now dominant at 55% across the U.S. And this hits our uh, forecast exactly of the equilibrium um, point in which right now cases are plateaued because you have declining cases of the old and surging cases of new, and now they're equal. And now that means April we're going to get a surge. And in the U.K., where they already had dominant BA2s for over a month since late February, they're having cases rise, hospitalization surge, and death surge. And we do not want that. And just last week, I think in one week in the U.K. Um, where BA2 is dominant, uh, about uh, 6 to 9% of the entire country tested newly positive. In one week, six to nine percent of wow. the entire UK population test positive, uh, so positive. So this is week.
3: whacking people who've already been b- vaccinated, exactly. already been and boosted and already been sick with COVID.
9: Yeah, exactly. Like, UK has like 99 percent of the people with some form of antibodies, whether it's from vaccinations or previous infection. But BA 2 and Omicron in general is so transmissible and so penetrant against Previous immunity because it is so different from Wuhan. Our vaccines are against Wuhan, uh, or spike protein, and so it's we're not trained for the Omicron BA two. That's why you know in terms of infection protection, you know, uh, you know, Obama got it recently, uh, Jen Zaki got it recently, and many other individuals got reinfected yeah. recently. Jen Zaki got it twice. Yeah, exactly, and that's the whole thing: reinfection. Even there, so this, so some people feel like they're invulnerable with hybrid immunity. It's not, you know, Jen Zaki was uh, vaccinated and she got infected before, and that didn't protect her against BA2. That said, vaccines with boosters will protect you against hospitalizations and death very well, like 90 95 percent. But there is one, some waning, and especially among the elderly and the immunocompromised. If you're immunocompromised, you can already get your fourth shot. Um, but, you know, if now the FDA has said that if you're over the age of 50 or older, you can get a fourth shot. Now, that's still pending CDC final approval in the coming days, but uh, it is coming. And I think the fourth shot will reduce infection risk even further and improve your odds against being hospitalized and, and dying even further. But again, this is where so, I always e- e- emphasize.
3: Excuse me. Did, did I misstate that? Because my, my read of the, I, I got it from the Los Angeles Times this morning was that the FDA had approved that fourth shot. I thought that meant everybody could go out and get it. Does Not yet. It still, yet. Yeah, oh, it still has to go statements. through another hoop.
9: There's the FDA approval authorization, right. and then there's a CDC approval. And it's see. only after the CDC approval can you go out and get it. I see. That said, if you're currently immunocompromised, you can already get your fourth shot. That's already been approved.
3: Right. But you're expecting um, the CDC approval by the end of this within
9: week. Within days. Within days. Like. Yeah either as early as tonight or but i think that it's going to be a couple more days until they're meeting so right. i think it's probably end of the week i would say
5: yeah okay
9: so that's good news but ba 2 is is the worst news because you know this is why i always tell people your boosting is good but boosting also wanes hence you gonna you know this fourth shot um and the thing is it's it's kind of like if you're vaccinated it's kind of closing like you know two lanes of a four lane highway Yes, you've your bridge won't collapse, right? Your highway bridge won't collapse. Uh, you're not going to die, but the thing is, like, even if you close the um, several lanes of the highway, it's still allowing a lot of virus traffic through you. So, even if you're not going to have a collapse of your bridge and uh, go to hospital, you could still carry it to someone else who's immunocompromised. Right. And if anything, if you feel more invulnerable. That actually means sometimes some people will go to more nightclubs, more bars and restaurants than they did before. So they now travel on more bridges uh, than they did before and uh, increase the likelihood they could carry it home to them. So I always tell people you have to be cautious Even if you feel you're healthy, someone around you, a family member, a friend, a neighbor may not be as healthy as you and you of being uncareful, careless, could actually bring the virus to them. And, you know, most of the case, like China right now is having a BA2 as well. And they found like 90% of all the cases, they do mass testing. And most of the cases they find are asymptomatic. And that's inherently why, you know, it's silently passing through you, even if you don't have symptoms, even if you're not going to get sick. It, it will eventually reach someone who is vulnerable, and that's ultimately you know, once you find the vulnerable, that's ultimately who, what drives up hospitalization in cases. Right. So don't spread the virus.
3: One, one of my, uh, uh, well, I, I shouldn't get in, I was gonna talk about one of my kids, but um, uh, let me put this in the context of our business here. Um, you know, we've got four of us in the studio, and now we're spaced out really, really well. We've got individual air filters with UV light in them to kill viruses for each one of us um i think we're doing pretty good and we're all living very very carefully um but uh, it, would it be wise particularly given that if you said 90 percent of those ba2s are asymptomatic of course that's among a heavily vaccinated population um would it be wise for us like every wednesday or every monday or something to just like routinely test all of ourselves is that something that a, a small business should be doing or a family
9: yeah, I think you know if you can, uh, if you have the financial resources, and this is always where the inequality comes in. I think mass testing is is good. Um, I think uh, you know if if you guys can get a hold of uh, such tests, doing on a regular basis is good. Oh, I've got a box cases of right now. Are still low? At the moment, cases are low, but as cases arise in April, I think you should start thinking about that around mid-April, as cases are definitely rising, and they're already rising in. the in the Northeast, in New England already, because um, we're oftentimes seated by BA2 earlier there right. than the rest of the country. I think it is, but I'm really glad you have HEPA filters and and um, UV disinfection in your air systems. HEPA filters are really good for small rooms and classrooms. I recommend them for everyone. But, of course, ventilation is the cheapest. And don't buy the HEPA-like, HEPA-grade, you know, HEPA, Quality, like you want to get the authentic HEPA filters, not the other knockoffs. Right. And there are a lot of knockoffs out there, and that's unfortunately we don't have time to get into them. But you know, buy the authentic HEPA filters. Right. But of course, ventilation is still the best.
3: I, I you know, back in the uh, back in the eighties and nineties, and, and even the early two thousands, well, very early, um, I, I owned a couple of businesses that did business in, in Taiwan and in China, and in Japan. And spent a fair amount of time traveling in that part of the world, and in South Korea as well. And uh, what I found was that during flu season, people just routinely wore masks, and and particularly people who had any kind of symptoms, who thought that they might be sick, they wore a mask as a as a uh, you know as respect to not transmit the disease to other people. Um, I mean, then this was decades ago. This this is you know because very high population density there. Do you think that that's the new normal for America and that, and that we're going to be seeing, you know, about one or two Omicron shots every year just going forward? I mean, I saw the Washington Post piece, I think it was, or maybe it was the New York Times about, you know, from the, the experts on viral mutations saying, you know, this is far from the end of this thing.
9: Yeah, COVID is definitely dragging on much longer than any of us anticipated originally. And I think, the pro- I think we need to get to a new normal. And the question is, of course, US, a lot of people don't want to wear masks. So I always think of like COVID as there's several legs of, of stopping it. There's masks, and especially N95, K95 premium masks. If you wear it, it's effective. If you don't wear it, it's not. Uh, mass testing is good, but testing is obviously limited in quantity and capacity. And many places are shutting down mass testing centers so people can't f- get them for free. Um, uh, And I think ventilation disinfection is, uh, in addition to vaccines, is the other leg. I think you have to do several uh, legs. You have to do two or three of the legs in order to uh, maximally control this virus. If you don't wanna wear a mask, then fine, get vaccinated and ventilate the air and get tested. Uh, like, Do at least two or three of these four things. And if you do them, we can dramatically cut down the cases. And in certain ways, I like ventilation and air disinfection uh, in a unique way because it doesn't require human behavioral compliance. Getting people to mask is very difficult. Getting people to vaccinate for those who are anti-vax is difficult. But you know what? Then do the testing and do the ventilation disinfection. Especially installing them in public restaurants, some bars, nightclubs will be a huge, huge boon because it would really, really make those environments much more safer and doesn't require human intervention. I think together we can end it, but if you just are abstinent and don't want to do any of the four, then you're gonna drag this pandemic on long.
3: Yeah, there you go. Dr. Eric Feigelding, follow him on Twitter. His Twitter feed is amazing. Dr. Eric Ding, D-R-E-R-I-C-D-I-N-G on Twitter. Dr. Feigelding, thanks so much for dropping by today.
9: Stay safe.
3: Always great speaking with you, thank you. Richie Z in Chicago. Hey, Richie, what's up?
5: You know, I want to talk about the death with dignity. My mother uh, suffered three heart attacks or stroke, but the third one was devastating. She was 100% paralyzed, couldn't speak. I always told my mother I'd take care of her so I took her into my home. The doctor said she would only last about two months. She ended up lasting two years. Wow. It. I became a counselor uh, for people that are terminally ill but I also help counsel caregivers. And let me give you one suggestion because I heard a lot of stories today. I'm a long time listener first time caller to your show. Thank you, Richard. Um, but uh, the one piece of advice find a doctor that deals with the terminally ill. What what all your callers were saying was so true they, they won't prescribe the medication the, the pain medication because uh, of the government and all this other stuff and everything else. Um, if you find, and then your your patient, whoever it is, your loved one, suffers, okay? Right. I was able to find a doctor that dealt with the terminally ill, and uh, he prescribed the right medication. And he took, there was something that he did that really blew my mind. He took away a lot of the medication that she was taking, and he said, you know what? This stuff is just keeping her alive. It's just keeping her existing, not alive. But she mm-hmm. didn't have a life. okay? Wheelchair right. or hospital bed, couldn't talk. Uh, they took away all of that stuff, and then she did end up passing with dignity in a short period of time. Yeah,
3: yeah. Richie, thank you, thank you for sharing that story. It's, uh, this is tough stuff. Thank you very much for the call. Bonnie in Coos Bay, Oregon. Hey, hey Bonnie, what's on your mind?
10: Hi, Tom. Hey. Same subject. Feel sad listening to the last man. Yep. Feel sorry for his mother. Um, my husband had cancer diagnosed in 2015. Went through strong chemo, strong radiation. Was told he was in admission, Came came back. Came back a few years later. Strong in his bones everywhere. Ouch. So he had been asking about the death with dignity process already. He was wanting to know how one goes about that. We live in Oregon where it's available. Um, uh, We went through quite a process, um, you know, securing the lethal drug. Uh, We finally got it, and he died peacefully in my arms as he wanted. Now, what I'm calling to tell you is i I react every time I hear anybody call this suicide. Right. Death with dignity is kind of a com- clumsy phrase, but that's all we've got. Yeah. Okay, this is not suicide. I'm with It's you. not assisted suicide. I'm with Suicide you. is when you deny life. It's when you don't want to live. Yeah. My husband loved life. He wanted to live. He He did not want the long, protracted... Suffering. Yeah, no.
3: I, I I totally get it, Bonnie. I'm sorry, I'm out of time, but thank you for sharing your story with us. And and uh, and you know, it's important. It's really important for people to hear these stories. And uh, you know, bless you, Bonnie. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Get out there, get active. Tag your it. Have a great afternoon. Pray for peace in the world, huh?
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman.